Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup, on-farm research and demonstration with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI's team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials, and events at MBFI as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. This week, we are back chatting with Mary Jane Orr, who is the General Manager for Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, Inc. Mary Jane leads a dedicated team at MBFI to advance Manitoba beef and forage industry through engaging stakeholders, evaluating on-farm innovation, and extension for sustainability of farmers, the public, and the environment. She deeply values the opportunity to collaborate with producers, researchers, education providers, extension specialists, conservation groups, and all stakeholders in field testing management practices and growing understanding of improved production in Manitoba. Mary Jane holds a PhD from Purdue University in soil microbial ecology and agricultural systems, is a professional agrologist and certified crop advisor. Her experience in ecology and field agronomy gives her unique perspectives on the challenges facing the agriculture industry today. Welcome back to the podcast today, Mary Jane. Before we get into talking about the project topic for this episode, can you give our listeners a quick update about what's been happening at MBFI and any upcoming events they can be watching for this fall? Thank you, Chantel. Well, we've wrapped up the summer workshop grazing series that ran from May the spring in 2022 through till August. So that was done in partnership with Manitoba Agriculture and Ducks Unlimited. And so that was really a fantastic opportunity to kind of roll out of pandemic conditions and bring in speakers. We had Steve Kenyon back in May. We focused fencing and water solutions in June and had Abby Wick come up from North Dakota um, to talk about soil health with May Elsinger talking about pasture health assessments in July. And then we have Dr. Kevin Zedevic from North Dakota come up as well in August to do a workshop and field tour with us. And we were able to feature our diversification centers, James Frey and um, Michael Teeley, who's coordinator for Ducks Unlimited uh, grazing clubs, as well as a consultant for understanding egg. So it was an incredibly busy summer and it was fantastic getting the opportunity to network and meet producers and Uh, have a look at everything that's going on um, at MBFI. And so as we're heading into the fall now, 
we're going to, so we've wrapped up the grazing workshop series, but we are going to continue to partner on several events again, across Manitoba to roll out the Farmers for Climate Solutions Farm Resilience Mentorship Program. And this is a program that's being run across Canada where MBFI is an implementing partner in partnership with Manitoba Agriculture for the Advanced Grazing Systems Program. And so the National Mentorship Program is really focused on providing information, building peer-to-peer mentorship groups across Canada with kind of the same entry level information to be successful in adopting new management practices, specifically in cover cropping or fertility management or um, rotational grazing. So at MBFI, we're just focused on the advanced grazing systems. And we are working with three mentors across Manitoba. So we have Cameron Hodgins from Westman, Ron Moss from uh, north of the park around the Dauphin area, and Jonathan Bow in eastern Manitoba and in the Interlake. And so now we're really looking at uh, continuing to partner to host events and roll those out into the fall so we can hopefully have uh, support for producers interested in adopting new management practices to improve their grazing practices, which aligns really fantastically with a lot of the work coming out of the um, Manitoba watershed districts right now. So on September 7th, and I believe when we're recording this now in August, so I believe it'll actually be uh, September 7th when this episode will be posted. So today in Dauphin, um, the Intermount Watershed District and Manitoba Agriculture are hosting a workshop on grazing system planning. And on September 9th, on the Friday in Ashern, the West Interlake Watershed District with Jonathan Bow is hosting a grazing and soil health workshop and a field tour featuring the Hummel Ranch and visiting Lyle and Tyson Cook's farm. And so really excited to uh, continue focusing on how we can learn to improve our grazing management and hopefully um, support producers that are looking at maybe putting in some new fencing or new watering systems. So it's a pretty exciting time right now. And so we'll have some more events that'll be coming up later into October and November. So I guess you have to just stay tuned to our social media pages and we'll have the advertising and promoting those events as they come. We don't have the date finalized yet, but we'll also be hosting a winter workshop on looking at winter feed and maybe a little bit of extensive grazing and probably we'll include some economics and cost of production for overwintering cows. And we'll probably be targeting that um, in November, early December. Lots of stuff going on at MBFI and that uh, winter feeding workshop will roll really nicely in with the winter feeding series that we're also going to be running on the podcast. Today, we're going to discuss the strategic beef herd development project that's underway at MBFI. Can you share a brief overview of this project to get us started? That's such a big ask because as we were talking about before we started recording this, it starts off as a case study on how do you strategically develop your herd? And my goodness, it's so hard to uh, concisely put into words how much this project has become. So at our backbone, MBFI is a commercial cow-calf operation. So this cow-calf production that we have provides the animals to showcase beneficial management practices It provides the animals to be used in research studies. 
it provides us with the farm income to keep going and support all of the other activities that we're doing for on-farm demonstration and extension activities. And so before I joined MBFI, a discussion was started. It was probably 2017, 2018. A discussion was started in how um, MBFI can have a better suited breeding herd to showcase all of these different things we're asking this herd to do. And it was really the leadership of Dom Guilford, who at the time we had a, a steering committee or a farm management committee that was led by a producer chair. And so Don Guilford was that producer chair on that committee. And he was a leading force in asking the question or really raising the challenge to have a more thought put into the herd that we have at MBFI. So matching our herd plan goals with um, aligning with a lot of the BMPs that we're trying to promote at the farm. As you can imagine, if you ask any producer what the perfect cow is, you're going to get a different response for every single producer that you ask. So the most important thing is context. For us, we looked at our land base, our carrying capacity. We looked at the type of um, grazing systems that we were utilizing just to manage internally for the farm, but as well as what we were showcasing in demonstration projects or being used in research. And so we knew that we wanted to be a commercial operation. As you can imagine, when you're deciding anything by committee, there's going to be a lot of discussion. So we had, um, when I joined MBFI in 2018, we had a lot of fantastic discussion around what does a herd plan look like? And the way I got my head around it was to create it into a case study. So really the goals that we talk about and the specific production metrics that we're looking for are what makes sense for MBFI's operations goals and what we're hoping to work towards. So every operation may have different goals that they want to work towards, but our focus in making into a case study was to really emphasize some of the tools that are available to help us track our progress towards those goals. You've already kind of touched a little bit on how this project came about. Can you explain what objectives you're looking to achieve through this research? For sure. And the objectives are kind of really two parts. So on one hand, we have production goals where we want our uh, breeding herd to get to for our own management system. But then we also have project goals that are specific to highlighting all the different tools that we're using to get there. So on the production side, we really wanted to focus on improving our animal genetics to develop a breeding herd that's going to be really well adapted to consistent performance in an extensive grazing system, primarily forage-based. So not a lot of supplementation being provided. And so that led us down the track to looking at goal of setting moderately framed cows with much lower maintenance requirements, but really high fertility and mothering capacity and higher calf performance. So as a cow-calf operation, we're looking at having longevity in our breeding females. We're looking at wanting to have lower open rate. We want to have consistently healthy calves. So we're calving in April, May, and then tail end into June. And we're a research farm and we don't have someone living at the farm. So everything is done on shifts. So we want to have a really tight calving window. So we have a 45-day breeding exposure. 
so that we can have you know groups of pairs ready to go out on projects late May, early June. And then we also really want to build confirmation across um, across the groups so that when we're selling our calves, we want to make sure that we have a really strong packages of calves to go and to make sure that we're having cows that are able to uh, make it through winter on a diverse feeding regime. So they're going to bounce back really well, breed back quickly and have a healthy calf in the spring. So um, that's what our goal is um, just farm wise, um, but specifically project wise, we wanted to evaluate really improving our production records. So how can we use all of this data that we're collecting to make more informed decisions and how can we showcase that? How can we use different technologies or different genetic tools that are available for commercial cow producers? How can we use some of that, I could almost call it precision ranching. And I know in a follow-up episode, we, we can have a little bit more deeper discussion on that. So on the kind of the case study side of it, it's more evaluating these, all of these different tools you can use, and then cross-referencing that to just our production records year in and year out. So we have a small group. So we're targeting 150 pairs, 75 at the Brookdale farm and 75 at the Johnson farm is our goal to align with our carrying capacity. And so we're still working towards getting to that number. It's fluctuating, but our goal is to get to yeah 150 pairs total. And so that's not a huge number of cows um, to really do to have the numbers, to have any kind of statistical evaluation on whether one breeding program is better than another. So we've done that. So I would really emphasize that this is a case study and it's purely observational in terms of these are the decisions we're making, or this is why we're making these decisions. And these are our production records through time to see the impact of decisions we make now you know, we may not, we're not going to see those impacts until two, three, four, six years down the road. So it takes a lot of commitment to uh, stick to the plan and continue working towards our goals when there's such a long delay in, in seeing, seeing responses. We were recently um, had a conversation at the Canadian Beef Conference in Penticton, and we were kind of joking because you're <laughs> working on a herd um, breeding program and yeah it takes you know three years but if you know if only chickens it's like what a couple months and you have a quick turnaround it's all uniform genetics in the barn out the barn and uh, easy peasy you have your results in the flash of an eye but we have to have a lot more commitment and we have to you know keep reading the plan <laughs> so that we remember what the plan is and we go and buy our bulls but yeah so it's the two parts we have had the opportunity to have some really great collaboration so I know in the next episode, following up from this one, you'll be talking to Susan Marcus from Lakeland College. We have this case study that encompasses all aspects of our herds production. But in conversations with Susan, we had, it kind of came up as case study really perfectly aligned with a very specific academic research, looking at tools for evaluating replacement heifers in a, in a commercial application. It's when the stars align and we're able to layer academic research on top of ongoing case studies, uh, which is fantastic for really taking advantage of our efforts on all these different demonstration projects. 
And so um, getting to work with Susan has been phenomenal. She is such a wealth of information and expertise and her ability to bring together fantastic teams. So in that one, we're specifically just pulling out what we're doing with our replacement heifers um, that are MBFI born and bred and raised and using even more technology on top of what we were already doing to kind of pull that out of the broader case study. So I'm really looking forward to that, to hearing what Susan has to say about that project specifically. This project, I know when I was looking through the documentation on it so far, is such a huge project and there's so many different aspects that are so representative of very different parts of the herd. And I think that it's important you've said that for this project, you're working on MBFI schools, but there's things that other producers could implement on their own farms, even if they have different goals. And I think that it's important to mention that whether you have a commercial herd or a purebred herd, there's things from this project that you can learn, or you could try and implement in your own herd, even if your herd structure itself is just slightly different. What advantage does MBFI have in being able to research this over, say, a traditional cattle operation? I would say patience for intense bookkeeping would be my go-to. So I know we've featured Leah Rodvang before. Leah is our research technician, and she has an absolute passion for the beef cattle production. Her passion to dig into the data and to build the spreadsheets and consistently maintain that, because it's not just farm records, it's also, okay, now the group is in this project and now they're off project and now they're back on project for us. So kind of, you have a sliding scale of, of information collection in terms of taking away an idea from some of the stuff that we're promoting. And I'll kind of bring this up a few times, but really the beef cattle research council has some amazing tools, specifically how are we better suited or able to kind of collect this much information and this much information you know, may or may not have value for a commercial producer. We're trying to really dig into the weeds so that we can have it as a benchmark for other producers to kind of evaluate and then pick what may make sense to, you know, maybe do once a year, or maybe every few years on their own farm. You kind of mentioned a little bit about the tools in your answer to that question. What is the importance of decision-making tools in building a cattle herd? From my perspective, we're managing this farm. I'm the general manager. I report to a board of directors. So having goals very clearly defined and collecting production metrics that I can track through time is something that allows my conversations with my board of directors to go much more easily because we have a lot of producers coming from very different backgrounds on my board of directors. That's obviously not the real world for a lot of other farmers, but if you're feeling like there's room for improvement on your operation, you're going to go, okay, well, what's something that I want to try and work on and improve? So identifying a goal is a fantastic first step, but the second step has to be having some way of measuring your progress towards that goal. So it may be something as looking at your grazing plan and looking at herd nutrition, and then looking at bull selection, or looking at then open rates, or the longevity of cows in your herd. And for some producers, they have all of that in the back of their brain, and they're these 
wealths of information that they can tell you at the drop of a hat, the full family line of a single cow. I don't have that capacity. I need to have things in front of me. But I think in terms of translating that information in any kind of farm succession planning or sharing or telling your story in terms of how do you get to point A from point B, I think you have to be able to have some metrics that you're quantifying and making note of and tracking how those change over time so that you can really know that your efforts are putting you in the right direction. And what are some of those decision-making tools that MBFI is using for the project? We've made reference to our case study report. It's just light reading of some 54 pages, (laughs) (laughs) but in it, We have production records. So decision-making tools could be as simple as knowing what your previous production records are. And by production records, I mean, have your cows maintain condition or body weight over the year? Is there a specific time in your breeding management cycle where cows are losing condition? Or did you try a different grazing strategy and you saw higher open rates? Really production records are going to be a number one first decision-making tool. And that could be weaning weights, birth weight, days of grazing with the herd. We have a very long list of all the different um, records that we're keeping in this project. So I do recommend everybody kind of go through how we're doing it. I also really highly recommend referencing again, the BCRC record-keeping webinar and the resources they have on their website. And they've done a really fantastic job of breaking down record-keeping into like three different levels. They break it down again in terms of animal health and performance. And also, we haven't really talked about it a lot, but also having a really good inventory of your forage and grasslands or your feed supply. Because when I kind of said earlier the importance of context, we're making decisions to get our herd to the point where they will be, you know, fully maximizing our care and capacity potential across our two farm stations. So you need to, you know, be evaluating your metrics on your product, like grass productivity, you know, maybe you have considerations for your genetics and then there's also record keeping for your financial aspects. For level one, um, I'm referencing the BCRC code here. So you know, knowing your weaning weights, your open rate, your length of your calving period and being consistent. So not having 60 days one year um, and 45 the next, and then not fully appreciating the impact that has on managing your, your calving period. Number of death losses is another great thing to know that as a percentage. So through the BCRC information, it really kind of goes through those three levels, you know, and each level building on the information from the last. And it really becomes quite involved and as involved as what we're, you know, the information we're collecting to catalog our progress towards our goals. But I think a really great point is that collecting information in of itself is, is fantastic, but it is only as valuable as you're using it. And that's again, where I defer to my fantastic staff in having conversations around and looking at what our production data has been telling us and how we're going to use that to maybe pivot, you know, constantly evaluating and reevaluating towards our goals. So 
mentioned, you know, that we have this broad spanning blue sky dream of where we want to get our herd to. And that happens over years and it's not a set in stone. This is what it will be no matter what plan it has. It's always reactive to regular evaluation of the information we're collecting. So I definitely wouldn't encourage anyone to stress and, and collect more information if they don't see value in it and don't see a way that they can use it to help make decisions as they're moving forward. I think that's a really good point too. And, and anytime that you're trying something new, whether it's a new grazing system or whether you're working towards a goal, so you've made a change in your program, there definitely might be some value in at least keeping some kind of record so that you know, whether or not that change itself made a difference at all in your program. And being able to go back and reference what it was like two years before you made the change and two years after you made the change. So you can have that really objective view of, yeah, I did this and this was the outcome of it, which I think is important. One tool that you are using at MBFI for improving profitability is hybrid vigor. Can you explain what this is and how it's linked to increasing the profitability of the cattle herd? I'm first and foremost, not the expert to very accurately and precisely explain all the ins and outs of hybrid vigor, but this is a concept that's been around for quite some time. And it's well recognized that when you have genetic diversity in your breeding herd, that it is tied to higher longevity of the breeding females, tied to higher performance in the calf crop and better productivity on feed. And I mean, in some numbers that get thrown around is, you know, X percent more productivity going into a feedlot. So I personally, I wouldn't be comfortable saying exactly metrics, but it was the, the concept of building in hybrid vigor again, was championed by Don Guilford and through negotiating from a herd plan into a case study the core of the concept was to both yeah build that confirmation, but then also build, build in hybrid vigor. And so our herd plan for MBFI focuses on British breeds on the front end. So we opted to go with Black Angus because there's just a huge diversity of, of kind of genetics within the Black Angus herd in Canada. And so we are working towards building, you know, moderately framed black Angus cows that are straight bred. So we're not having any registered females. So still commercially available, but as straight bred black Angus as we can. And that kind of foundational maternal herd will be consistently bred back black Angus, but also bred to uphold Hereford sires. When we have a really great consistency across our black Angus females and then we're bringing in the uh, Hereford genetics for uh, continued um, temperament, like docility, better performance on feed, and great hardiness as well. So there's a whole list of breed-specific traits that really well align with our operation. And so then that gives us these F1 black baldies. And then those replacement heifers that are the black baldies We'll work towards getting good consistency and confirmation in that breeding group. And then eventually, I mean, I think it's kind of funny how, how aspirational we are. 
because you start you start in one spot and you think, oh yeah, we're gonna have all these breeding programs in place and it's gonna be fantastic. And then you're working within reality and different production years and you know having to call a little bit heavier on replacements in a drought year. And so, you know, all these different things happen to to pivot and respond to to life. And so we've eased back on the aggressiveness of how we're implementing the different breeding strategies. So our focus um, for the last three years, so this project became a case study in 2019 in implementing it and kind of working with the reality of our own, of our, of the cows that we have. Our primary focus right now is just to build that consistency and confirmation of our Black Angus breeding group and, and our African baldies and right now they're just being bred back black angus once we get more established in that herd then we'll evaluate bringing in the three-way cross so having an f1 black baldy bred to a continental like a charlet or semitol and then really seeing that the biggest impact of the hybrid figure of crossbreeding the different breeds for performance and so with those F1 baldies bred to a continental sire, which would be rotated out, is where we would really see the most impact of, I mean, I think some people would say the only free cash on the table is utilizing <laughs> genetics for performance. And so that's where we'll see the biggest impact of the hybrid vigor. And so that's in the plan. It's, it's on the script and we're working towards it, but we're still, it just takes time to get to that level of, of confirmation before we really want to expand again and start evaluating terminal breeding crosses. And so I would, if anyone's more interested in this or refreshing, um, refreshing their memory on hybrid vigor, I would highly recommend looking up Graham Paslow um, from the U of A or John Basarab from Alberta as well. So these are two academics and they're also working John, I know, is working on some major genetic trials where they're looking at different markers and really continuing the research on hybrid vigor and really doing a fantastic job of showcasing just the impact that breeding selection can have on on the value of, you know, the genetic diversity in your commercial herd. So in very like plain terms, like kind of how I understand this, and you can tell me whether this is correct or incorrect, would be taking your breed and then breeding it with another breed in hopes that the best aspects of each breed are going to be passed on to that next generation and then being able to suit that generation to your goals. Would that be correct? I mean, that describes what we're, yeah, there's so much more to it. And I think there's so much expertise in tailoring how you can maximize, you know, specific traits from different breeds. And again, like it was, Don Guilford was the, was kind of the brainchild behind, you know, focusing on Black Angus with both Hereford and getting those F1 Black Baldies and setting that as our goals. And that makes a lot of sense. And we're seeing that. And I believe Susan Marcus may be discussing kind of how with increases in hybrid vigor scores. So we We'll probably talk about it here, but we are doing genetic testing of, of all like getting breed composition and genetic testing is one of the tools we're evaluating in this case study. And the indications from the research are that for each increase in hybrid vigor that corresponds to an increase in 
a number of different positive traits for production. So it could be longevity in the herd or fertility, long-term health. And then in the calves, if you're looking at a terminal cross, you see that in the production side of it. So you're seeing more pounds per day gained in response to the same amount of feed that you would from a, a similar animal that has a lower hybrid vigor score in this genetic testing. I feel like this is something yeah. I need to go back and look. I think that it's, it's so interesting, but I just don't know enough about it. This is where we defer to the experts. I personally <laughs> And so when we do these genomic testing results, so we pull tail hairs and there's a little follicle on those tail hairs that has genetic material that gets sent off to the lab. And we're doing a few different things. So we're, like I mentioned, we're looking at recomposition. So why recomposition? Recomposition is really a fantastic tool for us because then we can look and see what we started with. So a lot of our cows were Angus Semitol cross cows. A few of them were crazy how many different breeds they had in them. There was like five different breeds. Their hybrid score was off the chart. Yeah. So there's a number of cows that we started with, and then we kind of put the, the plan in place. And then we're slowly working towards our goal by following our selection requirements for new breeding stock we're bringing into the herd and following our set criteria for how we're calling out of the herd. We didn't do a full dispersal and then start with the cows that we wanted. We're really a slow march of uh, very strategically culling out um, by a criteria set that will eventually get us to that point. So recognizing that dispersal and repurchase of a herd just is not a realistic thing to do at the time. So we needed to come up with a plan for how we were going to get there incrementally step-by-step each year. Knowing what the breed composition of the cows is something that I can look at the dam and see what her breed composition is. If she's over 80% black Angus, then I'm going to be looking at keeping one of her, like if she has a heifer calf and the heifer calf, you know, meets these criteria, then that's a calf that we're going to keep over winter and give her the opportunity to develop and evaluate her if we want to do breeding her in, in July. The genetic testing. So yeah, we get breed composition. The other really neat one that we get is leptin testing. So it's a specific test that the genetic test for leptin is an indicator of how an animal lays down fat. So whether it um, lays it as back fat or like it's intramuscular fat deposition. And there's kind of three different expressions that they can have as either uh, very tender, medium, or less tender. And that's a really neat thing to be tracking through time, especially with the heifer project that we started doing back fat ultrasounding. And so for that one, we'll be able to relate what their intermuscular fat is on the ribeye to what their leptin genetic test is. So ideally, if we're wanting calves going out into production, we want a herd that's going to be leaning towards more tenderness in those leptin genetic traits. So we're getting pretty deep in the weeds here (laughs) in terms of, you know, evaluating genetics, but it is fascinating to see if what we're selecting for in terms of their, you know, milk production and their mothering capacity, do all these desirable traits hang together or does it have to be an either or in some cases? And so we're still very early in um, evaluating the information, but there's definitely some really fascinating information that you can incorporate when you 
relate it back to real life production. And then there's also the identity profile. And so that's a genomic analysis that basically gives you like expected progeny differences of your maternal traits. So it'll give you a rating of how that animal's genetic profile ranks against thousands of other cows of that same breed composition in terms of carcass quality, um, fertility, milk production, yearling weights, weaning weights. So it has 16 different traits that it will, that it'll list out based on how the genetic markers of your cow um, rank against this whole other pool of similar cows that have like this massive database of genomic analysis in these, in these animals. And this is done through Neogen and it does provide for a commercial producer, if they're trying to be very selective in developing a breeding herd for very specific goals, it does allow you to utilize EPDs in a way that wouldn't have been possible previously for a commercial producer. I just want to stop for one second. If any of our listeners are interested in the genetic testing, where would they look to find more information on that? So if they're interested in the concept of it or the idea of it, I would encourage them to uh, search. I think I mentioned Graham Paslow or, or John Basarab. I would have them look at that research or some of the, some like a webinar or some of the resources on the Beef Cattle Research Council webpage. Um, but if specifically they know they want to try and do some genetic testing on their commercial herd or their purebred herd, the group that we work with, and I believe there are a number of different labs out there, but the one that we work with is Neogen and they're based out of uh, Edmonton, Alberta. And they have a number of different uh, packages you can go with to having more or less information or different traits that you're specifically interested in. And um, really just having a conversation with their uh, customer service or technical expertise would help tailor what kind of genetic package you might wanna evaluate in, you know, all or specific, um, specific members or specific cows in a breeding herd. And I just wanna loop back real quick to the carcass ultrasound. Can you tell me a little bit more about carcass ultrasounding and who did those ultrasounds at MBFI? As part of the project with the precision wrenching for replacement heifer development, we ultrasounded all of our replacement heifers and it was Sherry Leachman. And so her company is Ultra Beef Ultrasound Services. And so, yeah, so she's based out of Maidenstone, Saskatchewan, but she has been phenomenal to work with. We actually uh, made an event out of it. So when she came out to ultrasound her replacement heifers for project, she was willing to stay over an extra day and she did an event for our 4-H beef day. She did a fantastic job of explaining what ultrasounding was, how we can see into the cow or into the heifer and get a sense of how intermuscular fat is being laid down or the size of the ribeye, I thought was really fascinating as well. So they can take measurements and evaluate kind of the quality of the carcass as it may hang on the living animal. And so for our purposes, we won't be making select choices on carcass ultrasound data, but we will be putting it in the suite of information to characterize the productivity going forward. 
it's a reasonable service, like fee for service approach as well. So it's very much within probably not every single animal in an entire herd, but it's very much within, you know, accessible to, to producers. What additional technology is being trialed as part of this project? So we've talked about production records, the genetic testing that we're doing, other pieces of technology that we use include GPS collars to track behavior in grazing systems as part of the replacement heifer project. In another podcast, we'll go into more detail, but we do use boluses that track the rumen temperature and activity and basically works towards an algorithm of heat detection or health status detection. We also use in our mature herd, the eSense ear tags, which similarly detect activity and temperature from a tag that sits within their ear. So we should be getting similar types of data from these two different pieces of technology to really monitor health status in the herd, more quickly identify when we might need to do an intervention. And what is going to be really interesting as we streamline our ability to get technology to talk to the internet um, across the whole farm. So as we you know, work out the kinks in that, once we have both data streams flowing, would be to see as the heifers age up into getting into the mature herd and the mature has these eSense ear tags, are we getting similar information from the different technologies in identifying if a cow that preg checked positive in the fall by rights, we should see an indication if she may have slipped her calf or had a had something happen that now we're not having to carry this cow all the way through till the end of June if she's not going to have a calf. So that would kind of give you an early indication of when you might have a change in your expected calf crop. So yeah, the cows are getting to wear all kinds of jewelry. So they have <laughs> GPS collars, the eSense hub ear tags, and then Really, the biggest emphasis has been on production records and collecting the genetic information and seeing how that pans out over time is where I think it's been three years, but in another three years, where are where are we at in um, getting that confirmation and where are our hybrid rigor scores going to be three years from now? And are we seeing that increase in longevity in our herd? Are we seeing an increase in fertility in our herd? And are we seeing um, more consistency in our calf crop in terms of weaning weights and average daily gain? And hopefully <laughs> seeing that reflected in improved market price, or at least continuing to kind of have a calf crop that comes in at the higher end. Because right now we're marketing our calves um, at auction. And so we can track how our calves perform in that auction mart on that day. But again, blue sky dreaming, hopefully we'll be working towards building enough uh, consistency in our production that we can start marketing our calves more effectively as well. So that's a whole nother kind of kettle of fish in terms of how we can more effectively market our calf crop. Step-by-step, step, first focus is just to build that consistency and confirmation in our herd and have a herd that matches the management style and the land base that we have. I know I mentioned that before, but I 
I really can't emphasize that enough is that the decisions that we're making are within the context of our operation that work for us. And so our hope in doing this case study, other producers may be able to go, well, that's a crazy plan. I would never do that on my farm. But, you know, maybe I might be interested in one of the things that we've mentioned so far. And a little while ago, you had very briefly uh, mentioned the culling strategies and breeding stock selection as tools that were used at MBFI. Can we go back to those for a few minutes and talk about what the culling strategies are that are used at MBFI and how the use of predetermined culling strategies can be a beneficial practice? For producers when they're thinking about the longevity of that cattle herd? Again, we're not a single family farm operation. So there's not a, a single voice that gets to make all the decisions. So we do we make decisions in the group and it can become incredibly difficult if you don't have very strong protocols. Culling can be really tricky, especially when we all have our favorite cow we all have our, oh, but she, you know, she has fantastic daughters and she just give her another chance. So we have these protocols in place so that we can be incredibly cold hearted. And if they don't meet certain decisions at certain points in time, then they're gone. So that really just standardizes it across the board. So we have two main culling seasons, I guess you could call it, or time points within our production cycle in November we preg check. So any cow that's open in November is shipped. And then our second calling date is when the pairs go out to pasture a project. So we don't maintain group of dry cows that may have lost their calf or may have aborted or had a healthy calf and it died. The main rule of thumb is that if you don't have a live calf at foot, by the time it's time to go out to pasture, they're shipped as well. And so that has really led to being more aggressive than maybe some other operations would be. But the consideration for the shipping without a live calf at foot is really just to manage the number of groups of cows that we have going on at any one time. So that's just the logistics of running a research and demonstration farm. So we have three main groups. We have the Brookdale herd that runs through a grazing system up there on a demonstration project. We have the kind of Johnson Farm for Street Pasture herd, and they run on a grazing demonstration project. And then we have our group of replacement heifers, which kick around the Johnson Farm for the summer. And so to have more than three breeding groups become starts to become untangible in terms of managing uh, staff time and summer students and just keeping everything having enough fence to go around. And I think all of those things that you mentioned, whether it's the time or the number of breeding groups, or even just having everybody on one page. So there's consistency in those decisions, whether you're a facility like MBFI or whether you're the family farm and it's a husband wife team, or it's three generations that are making those decisions. All of those things are very relevant in both of those situations. So just having that written out predetermined tool, I think is so beneficial for everybody, regardless of your situation. What are the culling strategies in a list that you would use at MBFI when you're evaluating that cattle herd each year? So first and foremost, 
as a research and demonstration farm where we have summer students and we have the public coming and going, disposition is going to be the number one calling factor. So no matter where we're at in our percentage of total calls for the year, if a cow or a bull turns on us or become like has a, a really aggressive temperament, they'll be shipped, yeah, sold off farm immediately. So we set a calling percentage each year. And so when we were more aggressively turning over our herd, we set it at 15 to 20%. And now that we've had a few years of culling harder and bringing in breeding stock, we're now easing back to just a 10%. So we're targeting 10% of the herd to be culled. And then we just work towards that along this criteria list. So the fewer opens we have, then we may be able to call an animal maybe for a really bad udder or for feet. So that's kind of the logic behind it. So we prioritized call choices. Depending on the year, if we had a lot of opens, we may not then be able to call for long-term health or feet or something like that. So we have uh, disposition, uh, open, the calf performance and mothering ability. So these cows are judged um, for their calf rearing ability. So when we're processing calves, we make a note of if there was any assistance needed in the calving process, how well they mothered up, you know, did they try and grind it into the ground? And, you know, we had to spend half a day getting her to remember how to be a mother, all of that. So mothering ability, and then also the performance of her history of calf crop also look at uh, reproductive efficiency. So how well are our cows able to breed back in those 80 days from calving to being exposed to a bull again, and then structural and health soundness. So this is where we start getting into that ability to call for getting confirmation in the herd. So we're utter scoring all the cows when we're processing calves. So when we process the calf in their calving book, we make a note again as a tool. So in the BCRC kind of production records piece, you can see some schematics of, you know, how you would score utter, how it's positioned and the size of the teats. We also score legs, hips, and feet structure. We also um, much, much further down the line can start looking at frame score. So if we have cows that are much larger or not having the depth and breadth that we're looking for in our breeding stock. But I can guarantee you, we have not gotten to that point <laughs> in our calling list. By the time we get through disposition opens and bad feet and udders, that pretty much eats up our 10%. And so that's been part of the learning curve is things where we thought we might be have an opportunity to call. And when we follow this criteria and prioritize what we're calling for is why it's going to, I think, take us longer to get to having that really cohesive confirmation, because right now we're really focusing on getting cows that are breeding back effectively every year. So it's the fertility and longevity is what we're selecting for right now. Because I mean, we could have cows that, you know, had much better body confirmation but if they're not getting pregnant, then they're going. <laughs> so that's been kind of the interesting thing to see when we first started out, what we thought we would be calling more for was what we actually ended up calling for has been an interesting process. That is interesting. 
I was just thinking about like some of our cows and like, especially in our commercial herd that we bought in some of those cows and the ones that are called because they're open that were really nice cows and just having to have that logic of if there's no calf, then they're not profitable in your herd. And so it doesn't matter how beautiful of a cow they are or how well they manage in your herd. If there's no calf, then that cow that maybe doesn't look quite as nice or whatever, she, (laughs) she gets to stay. And those other cows that, that look so nice, they're, they're the ones that are, that are called. It's always the one you want to ship just keeps getting pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. Craig Testa, you're like, this one can be open. Brett. Okay. <laughs> what criteria is being used in breeding stock selection and why is this important? When we're selecting breeding stock, so we structured it so that over the first four years, we were bringing in bred bread heifers that would kind of be a bit of a jumpstart towards um, meeting our our target goals for our breeding herd. Um, And then we're also, right now, we're not doing any AI of our herd. So we rely on walking bulls. So we're still purchasing bulls depending on our needs annually. And so going forward, I think it would be really exciting if we could get to the point where we start syncing up and maybe like doing some select some select AI efforts on the farm. I think that would be in our future plans. But right now, for the last little while, we've had this higher culling percentage, so kind of that 15 to 18% as we were bringing in groups of anywhere between five and 10 bred heifers each year, and then also looking at the bulls that we're bringing in. So first and foremost, um, we're looking for straight black Angus cows or heifers that have been bred to preferably Black Angus or Hereford, pulled Hereford, either or, would be what's desirable. Then we're also looking for purchasing from herds that their management style aligns with our management style. And so we're looking for these more moderately framed with a lot of depth and breadth for really performing on extensive grazing forage-based system. And so the biggest thing has really been as simple as it sounds as, as relationships. So just really getting to know the industry in Manitoba and identifying producers that have a commercial side that are producing the types of females that we want in our herd or have a herd that aligns where we want to get to, um, you know, that have been added a lot longer than we have, you know, have 50 years plus into developing their herds. Each year we do kind of a flyer promoting for people to get in contact with me if they have bread heifers for sale. And then we go through the process of making sure that the program aligns with where we want our program to get to. So it's a little bit backwards from how a lot of other people would probably, most people don't advertise that they want to purchase bread heifers. It's the other way around, but it has been fantastic kind of beating the pavement and getting to know the different producers through bull sales and then getting to visit their maternal herd and getting to see the types of cows that they have in their system and then identifying each year a different farmer that we can work with to bring in a small subset of bread heifers to kind of jumpstart our program as I mentioned. We're incredibly lucky in Manitoba to have a, the number of high quality producers that we have in the province so it's been great getting to go on the farm tours 
and producers giving me the time to walk me through their their systems and where their values and goals are. And it's exciting to see when those values and goals line up. If there's a listener who thinks that they have a herd that might align with that and is looking to sell a group of bred heifers, what time of the year do you advertise and where do you advertise that if they were wanting to kind of participate in that? So we're slowly wrapping it up. So this will be the last year that we'll be looking to purchase a package of bread heifers and it'll be right about now to December is when we've been typically purchasing, purchasing bread heifers. After this year, when you're finished bringing in those groups of bread heifers, what are you looking at in your own breeding stock selection when you're looking at retaining your own replacement heifers to keep into the herd? We're looking at their mothers and their performance, especially with respect to what their udders are like and what their feet are like. Again, going back to those production records and so evaluating what their leg and hoof scores are at, evaluating how their udders are being maintained, how good of a mothers they are, and then looking at the calf and looking at the confirmation of the calf and whether or not it was born in the first cycle or not. So we're selecting from heifers out of born in the first cycle. We want to see them coming up at the you know top of the pack in their average daily gain and their growth performance over, over the summer and also who their sire was. So there's specific bulls that we know we want to, based on the, the family lines that they come out of, that we really want to bring those genetics into our replacements as well. We hang, it's kind of funny because again, we're a team. And so I'm there with my clipboard and I know who, what the, what the breed composition of the dam is. I know who the sire is. I know what day they were born and what their birth weight is. And uh, we sort them all out. And so we do the first sort visually. Like, so last year it would have been Ron Christensen, who is uh, come on with us as a beef research technician. Clayton Robbins, who's with us, his expertise in, in forage research. And we have Leah Rodvang and myself. And so we, we keep an eye. Like, I mean, we're like everybody else. We have the heifer calves that we've been watching all summer. And we keep an eye on the ones that we think are going to be good. And we know, you know, which, which uh, dam lines are better. And so we, we do a visual sort first. And then we pare it down to meet our target numbers. So our target number is 25 heifers. If we have a hard time nickeling down, we might go up to 30 replacement heifers that will develop those calves over the winter. But yeah, so the first first cut is visual, get them down into a pool, like really just more cutting out the bottom end ones that we know we don't want. You know, maybe we treated them, maybe they just didn't, uh, didn't shine as well as the other calves. And then we start uh, narrowing it down based on recomposition, specific genetics that we've brought in either through the through the dam or through the sire and then the fun part is and what was really interesting last year was where it was really the side by side was how close we were on the visuals so just making kind of the herdsman eye so like ron or clayton or leah's perception of okay no that's a good heifer calf how much that aligned with the clipboard approach of Okay, these are the these are the family lines that we want for these reasons. And so it was actually a surprising amount of overlap 
between kind of the management performance and the genetics of what we want to kind of bring in for MBFI developed heifers. Have you had kind of the opposite of that where on the clipboard, they look like they should be fantastic. And then when you're doing your visual appraisal, they're one of the first ones that are cut out. Yeah, definitely. So that's when all the management factors come in. So maybe, maybe that dam just didn't have the nutrition that she needed, or maybe she wasn't as competitive in the bale grazing, or perhaps that calf got sick or didn't respond to the vaccine as the vaccine program as well. And just didn't, you just can't account for the failure to thrive. And like, I mean, who knows why some, some don't thrive, but that's kind of that first visual cut of the bottom, bottom quarter, bottom third of the whole package of heifer calves. And so those get weeded out pretty quickly. And it's always tough when you see a calf that looks, it's more common to see a calf that looks phenomenal and you really believe in the genetics of the sire. And then she's off a mother with terrible feet, like just (laughs) terrible feet. And you're like, oh my gosh, the calf looks so good. And you know, the sire is so great. And that's when you start having those nickeling down. That's where the data really comes in. And it's like, yeah, she looks great now. But if it's a choice between this one and a mother that doesn't have bad feet as a five-year-old cow, we're not going to select. This one's going to go to, to market now as opposed to being developed as a replacement heifer. So to kind of wrap up the discussion on the culling strategies and the breeding stock selection, can you give us a little bit of an overview how both of them have evolved since you started using them and you kind of already talked about how they're used in practice each year, but if there's anything else you want to add to that as well. For sure. We've been able to stick pretty true to paper, like what the plan was in our selection. So I would say where the most evolution has happened is just in building relationships with producers in the industry. So just really getting the opportunity to see all the different operations are out there and to see how we can build what they've worked towards into our own operation has been just a highlight for me. I love learning about how everybody, you know, runs their own operation and what their trade-offs are and how they find their best way forward and what I can learn from that. Cause I always just really enjoy learning from producers and how they're making it go. And then how can we either highlight that or incorporate that into really having a a realistic cow-calf operation that's the backbone of our whole of our whole operation at MBFI. Where I think the surprises were were in the, you know, we laid out our criteria for culling. And like I kind of met like I mentioned before, I really thought we would have been culling for confirmation a lot earlier. And so that realization when we set a percentage of all of our breeding stock what we want to be culling at just to maintain our our farm projected farm income over the year and into the next year is how much we need to, you know, improve our fertility. Once we have good fertility, then we can start refining our confirmation, I think would be the one thing that I don't know if it surprised us so much as we just didn't realize it. Just what a big influence it is just having to be able to work within that kind of 10% calling goal. And that may fluctuate year to year, kind of depending on, on the challenges that we may or may have not have in production. But yeah, the most important thing is just having that cow breed back. So then we can start working on refining and maintain our profitability over the years going forward. 
there's a ton of data that's being collected between the different types of technology that are being used and the different tools that you're using for selection. How is all of the data being collected and what are the early results indicating? So we do use CattleMax for our herd management, but then also we're pretty reliant just on good old Excel. I generate production reports for our board meetings and for our reporting. So as you know, we're a not-for-profit organization that has major funders. And so I generate our production reports to keep our funders up to date with where we're at working towards our goals and how they support us in those goals. Making this a case study, we now have that opportunity to make that into a report. So as I alluded to earlier, it is, it is a substantial report, but I have to credit Leah Rodvang, our research technician, and also Ron Christensen and Clayton Robbins in Leah going through the process of how to package that information into a report. So like, what are some logical chapters almost we can put it into and then both Ron and Clayton spent time reviewing it and and giving some feedback on it so in the report it's broken down as just an introduction to just really what our production records are the background on our herd numbers and how we approach breeding management and then a production summary and then we have technology in the beef herd so that's kind of walking through the genomic testing and on animal monitoring that I alluded to. So those GPS collars and specialized ear tags and boluses, more detail on the genomic testing, looking at breed composition, carcass traits, and the identity profile, which has those 16 different genetic predictions on performance. And then a section on breeding stock selection. And so that goes through what our criteria is to meet our context goals for our operation. And so that's how we develop replacement heifers from within the herd and where we take replacement heifers from external sources. And we haven't even really touched on bull purchases. And so what EPDs or expected progeny differences are we targeting in our bull selection? And again, just to highlight the importance of relationship building with our producers that we're purchasing bulls from. The next section <laughs> is just application of the crossbreeding program. So then that talks about, you know, why are we trying to get a straight bred Black Angus maternal group, looking at how we're bringing in those pulled Hereford sires to get those F1 Black Baldies, and what the vision is to try and work towards that three-way terminal cross to bring in the uh, continental breeds. Uh, there's also a section on our calling strategy that talks about what our numbers have actually been and what we've actually called for each year and out and what some practical considerations that we've kind of worked through on. And then the last piece that we're, that we're on our way to working towards, you know, again, the long-term vision is what our terminal calf crop is. So that's really just looking at what are our production stats on weaning weights and average daily gains from the two different grazing systems. And then there's a little bit of a discussion about how some of the cow genetic markers and the sire genetic markers may be tied to calf production. And so all of that wraps up into, you can kind of jump through and get to sections you may be interested in, but this podcast including is part of our challenge is how do we 
pull out the little snippets that I think will be interesting for producers so that they don't have to wade through each of those different sections. So a part of our ongoing work is really trying to get creative and think about how we can pull out snippets, whether it's just featuring a tool or maybe it's just featuring, you know, a way that we graft our weaning weights against dam weights to see something. So there's all kinds of different ways of presenting the data we've collected to see patterns or trends or to give an indication of an impact of management. And so an area that I know Leah is really interested in, and and you yourself, Chantel, might get pulled into this as well, is to how can we better showcase and pull out some of the things like early trends that we're noticing as we're working through this protocol that we've developed. And it is a very lengthy report because I've gone through it in order to do some of these questions and some of the other work. But if listeners are interested in looking at it, it is extremely well organized and it's very well laid out and it is publicly available on the website and we can link it in the show notes as well. So if there's little pieces of this that you're interested in, I would highly recommend that you take a few minutes, go to the website and follow the link to this paper and then just take a peek at that, that section. It's beautifully laid out. So it's, it's not too hard to find things if you're looking for something very specific. Oh, that's fantastic. And just, uh, I guess a caveat would be that these are just our production records. So this isn't polished research. This is just all the data that we've collected as we're growing and refining our herd that is the foundation, like is, like I say, that kind of backbone of operations at MBFI. When are you anticipating to have some more concrete results, I guess, from the different elements of the study? We're starting to see some performance of our MBFI raised heifers that, you know, would have been born in 2019. So again, not huge numbers. Like I think we only calved out 134 this spring. So I think as we get more years ahead of us, we can start seeing patterns in our calf performance from females that we made a conscious decision into whether or not they were in our herd. So I think in another, I mean, it's crazy to say it, but like another two to three years, we'll have enough generations that we can start seeing that impact of the bulls that we brought in how that trickled down into our own replacement development. Because the goal is, is that we're going to be producing really phenomenal replacements that are going to make for a well-suited maternal group that's going to support the calf crop to really thrive on the management systems that we're evaluating. So after discussing all of this, because it has been a lot of information, Can you kind of wrap up how this is relevant to producers and our listeners? How it's relevant is really, I mean, our goals are not going to be everyone else's goals, but I really hope that this can start a discussion for producers to maybe see some value in picking maybe some metrics that that they would find useful in helping them maybe make some decisions to improve their profitability in their farm. So if they are also, you know, primarily um, cow-calf based, some of the goals might be similar, but even if they have totally different goals where they're purchasing replacement heifers every year, that 
they may be able to see some of these tools, or at least if they're interested, have a conversation with us about how they might be able to use them and help them improve their production and ultimately hope to improve their overall farm sustainability going forward. If someone is interested in finding out more or has questions or wants to come to MBFI and take a look at the cattle herd, what is the best way to contact you in order for them to do that? The best way is probably just to give me a call on my phone number, which will be in the show notes or to reach out by email. Um, We do host a lot of workshops and events, but that doesn't mean we can't organize like a, a specific tour to look at a specific question. So we always have an open door policy. Um, And you might get lucky if you just show up and there might be somebody uh, that's in the shop, but because we are a pretty lean ship, we do bounce between the two farm stations. So you may not always find somebody when you, when you come, but if you give us a heads up, we'll always make the time to, to walk through or give you a quick tour or answer any questions that you might have, or to dig deeper into any one of the aspects that we've talked about so far. And finally, to wrap up, what are the next steps for this project or kind of those really long-term goals that you are hoping that, I don't know, maybe five years from now, you're working towards those kinds of things? I think sticking to the plan is going to be the biggest challenge. It always is. You know, you get caught up in the moment. So remembering that we have a plan and sticking to, to our different protocols while still having a really good group discussion and and balancing those against, you know, every year's challenge. And I mean, it would be really great in the next five years if we could really start seeing that confirmation come together, like start seeing a really good cohesion in our in our breeding herd. And then ultimately past the five-year goal is to see if we really do see that hybrid vigor happen, if we were to bring in a terminal cross with a continental bull. So can we observe that in our own herd? I know it's well-documented, but I think that would be pretty interesting to check out in terms of just completing the whole crossbreeding program. And is there anything else that you'd like to share before we wrap up today? Anything else I'd like to share? I would say there's been a lot of information and I am Definitely not the cattle genetics expert to be asking certain questions, but I can put uh, put anybody in contact with anyone that is more of an expert in that area. Or I'm really happy to share resources on anything that we've anything that we've discussed today. There's so much that goes into into developing a cattle herd, and so much of it is a family legacy. And that is one thing that really stood out to me in visiting different farmers where we made purchases from is just how the legacy of all these decisions going back, you know, 50, 60, 70 years and the investment that Canadian farmers have in their, in their herds that produce this high quality protein product. And so I guess my biggest takeaway is just how amazing it is to to work with people in the industry and to see the passion that goes into maintaining genetics that is adapted to the Canadian prairies is I always, I'm just awe-inspired by. So I'm really looking forward to continue learning about this myself, like as I, as we work through this as a case study and to building those, building those relationships with partnering producers as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This project has such a large amount of information to discuss and to break down. 
And it's one that we will be revisiting further as there's just so much more to share and specific aspects to look at closer. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at mbbeefandforage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.